The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcovito.com. Our sermon text this morning is Revelation 11, 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. It's fascinated to find out from Elizabeth what I'm going to be saying. Um, it makes me a little nervous. I sit there thinking, I am going to say that, right? <laughs> oh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are humbled to be in your presence. Um, we do acknowledge that you are Lord, that you're King, and, and it's by your grace that we are committed before your throne and by grace that you have given us your spirit who we ask will now teach us. Um, we pray, Father, that you would make not only our personal interest um, important to us, but also your greater glory. Um, we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think it's important uh, to acknowledge that Christianity is not the only way that people find meaning in life. Many people do live full and fruitful lives, and they're also very comfortable and stable, though they're not practicing Christianity or being led by a Christian uh, perspective. Uh, It's important to think about that because Christianity isn't true because it works. There are other things that work. Christianity is true because it's true. Now, all of us, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we think deeply about it or not, we have some way by which we understand life. There's some way by which we give meaning to what we do. Even those who abandon all reason and suggest that life has no meaning, that itself is a theory of life. um, I'm weird, so I enjoyed Douglas Adams' novel, Hitchhiker's Guide, to the galaxy, you know, and in that book, there's a a quest to find the answer to the question. I know I'm inverting it for those of you who've read the book, but it's a quest to find the answer to the question, what is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? What is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? Uh, Some of you know the answer that the book gives, yes, 42. And you say, wait, that doesn't make sense. That's the point. His point is life doesn't make sense. And that is a view of life that some of us inhabit. Now, some of us think about it. Some of us don't think about it. 
But you do have a, me, a theory for the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. And I want you to hear this morning, and I certainly want you to embrace the Christian answer, which has more substance, more meaning, more direction than 42. For it's the only one that will persevere beyond life as we know it. It's the only one that transcends life and death. It's the only one that ultimately gives stability to the life that we now live. And that is that God is the one who determines the end. God is the one who determines the end. And since that is the case, as Christians, we live life within a framework of meaning. Not meaningless lives, but lives within a framework of meaning and significance. And I want us to be able to embrace that. You know, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it took a massive computer the size of a planet uh, to process these questions. And we laugh at that. It was meant to be funny, but it really is pretty much in keeping with the perspective of so many. Uh, it may be you, you know, that that which will give us meaning, the, the point at which we'll find significance and finally understand why we're living and what the purpose of life is, is going to come through, you know, science or you know, computing, if we crunch enough numbers, we'll figure life out. But no amount of number crunching or scientific investigation can reveal what can only be known by revelation, what can only be known by the creator of the universe. The purpose of life, the purpose of the universe, the purpose of everything is only going to be understood if the creator tells us by revelation. And with the blowing of this seventh trumpet, we again come to a point, a vision of the end, toward which all time is moving. I say we come to that point again because this time overlaps other visions. You know, this, this account here overlaps other visions within the book of Revelation, talking about this same period of time, the same framework. And the picture, this vision, reveals uh, a number of things. But first it reveals that in the end, God receives his proper exaltation. The direction in which the universe is moving is moving to a point at which God the creator, the one who made heaven and earth, uh, it receives proper acknowledgement, proper exaltation. So we read in verse 15 that the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You know what? I was very impressed that Dan and his reading did not break out into song. Uh, Dan has sung the Messiah by Handel. And I'm, where is he? There he is standing back there. He could break out into singing for, you know, he shall reign forever and ever. Um, but you know, there's a beauty in that. If you've ever heard the Messiah, you know, you've got this massive choir singing those words. And loud voices. You know, we have to hear this text as much as see it. The, uh, you know, uh, the seventh trumpet was, the seventh angel blew the trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of the Lord. It is loud. And it's a message that is loud and important and not new or unique. We'll hear it again um, in chapter 19 and elsewhere. But let's hear that. Um, uh, in verse 6 of chapter 19, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. So now a singular voice, a great multitude shouting with one accord. It seemed like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, 
Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. And again, we want to sing that because it has been sung so beautifully before. But the point is, in the end, things will achieve a certain place that, uh, that are the way they are supposed to be. And one of those things is that God will be properly lifted up and recognized. He will be worshipped and acknowledged as He should be. Now the importance of thinking about that end and the direction in which everything is moving is that this is a picture of the way things are supposed to be and we can lay that over top of the way things are and acknowledge the distance between the two. But at least as Christians living our life, there is a direction in which we know that we are supposed to move. And so we gather and worship on a Sunday morning to, to put God in front of us that we ourselves might declare, Hallelujah, the Lord, all God, the Lord God Almighty lives. The direction of all of life is that He will be worshipped and acknowledged as He should be. And it's not as if God needs it. God is completely sufficient and complete in and of Himself. But the point is, for the universe, the galaxy, the creation to be properly, what shall we say, synced, properly in relationship to one another, everything, the trees and the stones and the planets and the stars and the humans all need to turn in that one direction and to acknowledge the Creator and King. For us to be properly secured, properly rooted, properly anchored in this life, we need to properly see God as the one who is King, who has been King before all time, in time and after time, now and forever and ever. He is the one before whom we bow. And that is the focus here in this picture of the end of time as we know it as we transition into eternity. If you look at verse 16 as this vision goes on, the 24 elders, we met these earlier in, in Revelation, just a picture of the throne room of God uh, where he sits and around him are 24 uh, beings, 24 elders, they fell on their faces. And I think, you know, if we were to see one of these elders, we ourselves would be so struck with awe and overwhelmed with, with, with just a cognizance of, some, of greatness and might. These are the ones who nevertheless bow before Almighty God. They bow, um, sorry, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. What a, what a, what a visual image, okay? They just whoop down. Um, and saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Uh, some might conclude from that that God was not reigning prior to this. Uh, no, he doesn't suddenly become king over the world, but his sovereignty, which has been challenged and disregarded, is now complete. From the point of the garden on, humanity has questioned and rebelled against the, 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 the glory and the rule and the sovereignty of God. But at this point, all rebellion ceases. The time of rebellion is ended. His worship is full and proper and complete. Now, in our own day, you know, keep that vision before us. You know, those who flirt around the edges of Christianity and, and want to you know, embrace it with a certain element of respect, but at the same time distance, say they like Jesus. We like Jesus. Of course we like Jesus. I like Jesus. But some only like Jesus in as much as they can contain him. As long as they can whittle out of Jesus the things that they don't like, 
or the things that they really don't appreciate about what he did into a form and make him into a form that does not challenge them, then they're happy with the Jesus. Many want a Jesus, therefore, who is not also this. Many want a Jesus who is not also God, who is not the Son of God, the second member of the Holy Trinity. There was a projection glitch in our worship service at the meeting of the Central Florida Presbytery on Tuesday, and uh, that projection glitch cut out the first phrase of the Apostles' Creed. You know, we were to confess that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, but we started with, and Jesus Christ is only Son. Uh, but it was, just seems like a parable for me there. We want to remove the sovereign power and might and rule and dominion of God and just give us the little Jesus who, celebra- you know, who gives us stuff. That whittled down version of Jesus who is not the former, who is not God. When we lose sight of the power and sovereignty and the might and the worthiness of God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who was and is and who reigns and shall reign and whose reign shall have no end, our worship, our life, our understanding becomes imbalanced and and, and disconnected from reality, from truth. You need to see and perceive and bow down before the full majesty and glory of God. And whether you do or not now, you will. And the invitation of Scripture is to do so now and to anchor your feet in truth, not just what works, now. And to do so now, even in part, is to come to a greater understanding and to an embrace of the world, the universe, and everything else, the way things are supposed to be. This is true, and it is this truth that will anchor you. In In the end, God receives his proper exaltation. Secondly, as a part of that exaltation, in the end, God executes a proper judgment. And for some reason, it's really warm. So, hey, what the heck? Take it off. As a part of the praise given to God here in this text, then, is this. Verse 18. The nations raged. But your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. When God is properly exalted, his judgment of this world will be properly understood as real and as something to be deeply considered. His judgment is often trivialized and parodied in our world, sometimes in quite effective ways. I don't know if you can see that, but, you know, there's a congressman standing before God in the express lane. Uh, You know, it's for those who had 100 or fewer lives, lies, you know, and the guy behind the test says, nice try, congressman, or something like that. I can't read it. I don't have my glasses on. Um, We parody that. You know, and sometimes, like I say, to great effect. But truly, judgment is not a bureaucratic assessment, but a full and just rendering of what is due. That is what will transpire at this transitional point between the now and the forever. A full and real judgment. And that should encourage a marginalized people or a marginalized church 
That should encourage a church around, that is in parts of the world is restricted, abused, oppressed, and attacked. It's critical to know that in the end, all injustice, all oppression will be judged. What is not fair now will be made fair. It will be remedied. Those who escape now will not in the end escape. Judgment is real and will in the end be properly and fully executed. If we go back a bit to chapter 6, when the seventh seal uh, was cracked open, there was silence in heaven. Not loud noises, but silence. And then incense was lit, and that incense rose, and, it's, and we read that it was mixed with the, with the prayers of the saints. And what were the prayers of those saints? Um, um, did I go back? Uh, verse 10, sorry. The prayers of those saints were these. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These were the saints who were martyred, who are crying out for justice. It was not right that the evil and the wicked in the world took our lives, destroyed our families, uprooted our homes. It was not right. These are the martyrs whose lives were so tragically wasted and they long to have their sacrifice vindicated. Justice is hardwired into us. We desire justice. If our little sister does something bad to us, we want our little sister to pay. At the end of time, full justice will be executed. At the blowing of the seventh trumpet, the prayers of these saints and these martyrs will be answered. Those who raged against Christ and against his people and against his church will face condemnation. They will fall under the eternal judgment of a holy God whom they opposed in this life. We read there that he will destroy the destroyers of the earth. Those who destroyed that which God made beautiful, who made ugly that which God gave grace to, will not bear up under that judgment. God's not holding anyone over a fiery pit like a dangling spider, uh, no matter what Jonathan Edwards might have said. But he is giving those who touch his people to harm them fair warning that he will not leave such acts unpunished and unjudged. You cannot touch the people of God. You cannot harm God's people, the church, without incurring the wrath of the God who loves them. That's a part of his love for you. But the flip side of this needs to be noted as well, because we do, he does address here those who fear your name, those who serve him, those who hold on to Jesus. You are addressed here. Even though we may at times feel like we're holding on to Jesus tentatively, inconsistently, weakly, no matter whether you are rich or poor, influential or inconsequential, struggling or a saint, these are those whom God welcomes freely and certainly into his kingdom. There is a proper judgment, which is certainly, which certainly, you know, this is a call for the wicked to awaken and repent, but it is also meant to be an assurance to the faithful that God will bring about your vindication. You face hardship now, God sees it, God knows it, and God intends to deal with it. He will deal with your sorrow, your abuse, your oppression. He will do so fairly. Things are not sorted well now, but they will be. I thought of a time in junior high when I, I snapped. I basically just snapped. I was a seventh grader, or I guess, and 
kid bully came behind me. I was leaning back in my chair in the lunchroom. He tipped it over. Now, understand, we're talking something that happened over 50 years ago, but I have a vision of this that is as vivid as something that happened yesterday. He tipped over my chair and laughed. I fell over backwards, got up. I don't know what was going on with me, but I followed him like I was going to pummel him. Now, I was probably a lot taller than he was. But uh, anyway, he ducked into a teacher's classroom when I caught up with him and started to pound on him. The teacher punished me. That's the way of life on earth, but it's not the way things will always be. There will come a time when things will be as they are meant to be. Evil will be judged. In the end, God will execute a proper judgment. So the meaning of life, the universe, and everything else is shot through with a moral rightness. All is not meaningless. We don't always understand the meaning. <laughs> Man, I wish I could remember the line I heard in a song yesterday um, that the, you know, the, the uh, you know, life is cast with evil, but the play is written by love. That's, an, uh, uh, that's, that's slightly off. I'm not the poet, but evil is cast into the play around us, but it's written with the hand of love. It is not meaningless. There is right and there is wrong, and it will be sorted out as it needs to be. In the end, God receives his proper exaltation. God executes a proper judgment. But, you know, we really need to press further here into one thing. You see, Christian, you will be judged as well. So in the end, we need to realize that God reveals his final grace. Again, history is going somewhere. We're peering over here, the threshold of the end of time. Verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And again, we need a soundtrack for this sermon. You need to hear it, and I can't reproduce it in my, with my voice. But the sight and sound and feel of this is traumatic. In the Bible, these sights and sounds do something. They signal God's presence. The confluence here of the loud thunder and lightning crackling across the sky while the earth shakes in a violent upheaval reminds us not only that God is present, but that he is one not to be trifled with. He's not the heavenly grandfather with the long white beard that our popular images suggest. He is the one that this whole text has been declaring as one who is worthy of worshipful submission and who will bring certain judgment upon the earth. And his presence is symbolized by a box. Notice it says, the temple in heaven was open and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. Let's go back in Bible history just a little bit. Let me read to you Exodus 19. The setting for this is Moses is going up on the mountain, the mountain Sinai. He's going up there to see God on the morning of the third day. There were thunders and lightnings. Catch that? Thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Hmm so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. 
Wow, guys, you know, it's, this is kind of a metaphor. Now I'm getting off track, which is dangerous for me. But this is kind of a metaphor for what happens when we come in here on a Sunday morning. You know, Rob, the worship team, the liturgist, myself, our, our job is to bring you to meet God as best we possibly can. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Now, why did I want to read all of that? Revelation 11, first of all, is evoking the imagery of this scene. But I wanted you to catch that last verse. The people were told, do not come. Do not come. Do not come close, lest I break out in a premature judgment upon you. Do not come out, lest you die in my presence. And it's on the mountain then that God, in chapter 20, gives to Moses the Ten Commandments, the law, the law of the covenant that would, of the relationship between God and his people. He is doing a gracious thing here, a wonderful thing. He is making this people his own, and, and it, this, the, he is drawing them to himself, and he's laying out the terms of that relationship. And he desires to have relationship with them, but because of their sin, they cannot draw close lest they die. Now, why do I bring that to our attention? Not only for the imagery, but then the law that was given, carved in stone, was eventually encased in a box. And that box was called the Ark of the Covenant. It represented this relationship that God had entered into with His people. It represented His covenant. But pe the people of God were not given access to that ark. They were not allowed to open it. They were not allowed even, when the, when the tabernacle came into existence and the temple was built, they were not even allowed to approach it. Why? Because it represented the presence of God. It was central to the worship of Israel, but it was hidden in the temple in the Holy of Holies. And only on one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, one day a year did any dare approach it. One day a priest could come and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice to atone for, to forgive the sins of all the people so that they could know that they had that relationship with God. You know, the point here is the one that we most desire, the one whose approval we most seek, the one that you most need and desire is at this stage remotely accessible but not immediately accessible. And that's not the way things were supposed to be, and that's not the way things were intended to stay. Because eventually there was a sacrifice that did not have to be repeated. A sacrifice that allowed access to this ark. At the end of his life, as Jesus was, was hanging on the cross and then died, we read in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 27, verse 50, um, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now here's what happened. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. 
God was present. The curtain that separated the ark, the presence of God from the people, was ripped in two. Through Jesus, that which had been made inaccessible was made accessible through him. You are welcomed into the presence of God. And in the vision of, this end, a vision of the end that we have here in Revelation 11, the declaration is being made that that which has been true for the Christian in time past is guaranteed to be present in that time of transition. You will enter into the presence of God. More than that, you will be accepted into the presence of God. When you are in Christ, you come... Um, you know, you, there's a gruesome metaphoric image here, right? We've talked about it. We often sing about it. You are covered in his blood. And covered in his blood, united with him, you are fully and completely welcomed into the presence of God. Um, in Pilgrim's Progress, it tells the story of a man named Christian who makes us transition from the city of destruction uh, eventually to the celestial city. He crosses this boundary into this eternity. And is, he, is it fearful for him once he steps onto the shore of that celestial city? No. It's full of joy and wonder and trumpet blasts and welcome. That's what's pictured here. The Ark of the Covenant is visible. The Ark of the Covenant is there. That which welcomes us into the presence of God is visibly present there. Yes, then, Christian, you will be judged. <laughs> but you will not be judged on the value of your own merits because none of us merit this. You will be judged on the merits of your covenant head who lived a life of perfect obedience and died to take away your sin. His righteousness, his death will be yours. All that to say that the vision of this end, yes, gives a picture of God's final exaltation and this, his proper judgment, but it also gives a picture of his constant, enduring, eternal grace. And that should matter to us as well. Life can be scary. Life can be uncertain. Do you ever get on a roller coaster? We sometimes describe our lives as roller coasters. Would you get on a roller coaster if the end was not certain? Would you get on a roller coaster if you thought, oh my goodness, I don't know, somewhere along this line it might just shoot off the rail. Some of you won't get on a roller coaster for that very reason. But no, we don't get on a roller coaster until we are certain and sure of the end. Imagine how horrifying it would be to think that at any moment it would fly off the track. But guys, that's life. It's not going to fly off the track. We have a God who knows the beginning from the end. Our lives are broken, you know. David prayed, my brother died this week, I hate that. I want to avoid all the brokenness I can, but this world is often a dark place. But it will not always be so. We confess regularly as Christians, with Christians around the world, a confession that has been with the church and confessed by the church since at least the fourth century, that we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And you can look for that because what we are being told by revelation, not by massive computation, is that it will be true. And we can anticipate it if you're in Christ with joyful anticipation and not with trembling. This is the way things are supposed to be. And in the end, it will be a place of grace. In the end, God receives his proper exaltation. He executes a proper judgment and reveals his final grace. Things will be the way they are supposed to be. 
I told somebody this morning that I was going to throw him or her under the bus. I don't want to identify using gender here. But there are certain people, um, and I suspect there are more, who read the end of a book first. It's shocking, yes, I know. It's heretical. <sighs> but I have a confession. I was watching a show on TV the other day, and we're getting into a season, to the end of a season, and one of the characters, my favorite character in the show, gave indications that she might not come back. And I thought, what's the use of watching this show if she's not in it? So I went to IMDb to see, make sure she showed up in later episodes. We can enjoy the story much better if we know the end. And so one song about grace says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we've already come. And you know, I think if you say that the meaning of life, the universe, and everything else is 42, you can just say, yeah, there's been many dangers, toils, and snares, and there's going to be more, period. Not much joy, peace, or stability in that. But there is a destination and end. We're going to sing another song here in a moment. It says, your grace that leads, it is your grace that leads this sinner home from death to life forever. So what we have ultimately here in Revelation 11 is a picture of the home towards which your life is moving, Christian, inexorably. Hallelujah. Let's pray. I am glad, Father, that you do not cause us to depend on simply what we can see, but that you tell us things that we could by no means see but need to know. Thank you for this word, Lord, but help us to believe it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.